Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. The French author René Girard, polymath, philosophical anthropologist, once observed that the Eucharist is really related to sacrifice, but rather than representing the violence against the victim, of it being the victim that you eat, and you eat the total refusal of violence, which is Christ. We're going to be talking with Father Brian Carpenter about not just that sentence, but René Girard's Eucharistic and uh, Eucharistic theology and his perception of the Eucharist as eschatological sacrifice. Father, Father Brian Carpenter uh, wrote this article on gosh, Church Life Journal, René Girard and the Eucharist as eschatological sacrifice. Father Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Oh, very well, thank you. Oh, uh, sorry, I was looking for the sheet. I just found it. Uh, Father Brian is a parochial vicar at St. Matthew Cathedral, Cathedral in South Bend and is an adjunct faculty member at Holy Cross College in Notre Dame. Uh, well, no, actually, it's pronounced Notre Dame, Indiana, here in America. Now, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I must mention, uh, Holy Cross really does have a fantastic reputation for steady and stalwart theological work, especially when it comes to, you know, continuing the work that's being done in the unpacking of the intellectual tradition of the Catholic faith. So uh, kudos to all of you for the work that you're doing there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I know it's a great place to be, um, like you said, and you're right. A lot of people don't know us, but uh, I would say, you know, we we can punch above our weight class, so to speak, uh, (laughs) a lot of times there. Well, I mean, this article that you've published is proof of it. So I want to ask you, uh, why? what turned you to René Girard's work to begin with? You know, I actually got in touch with Girard's work when I was in seminary and at uh, Mundelein Seminary outside of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I was taking a Christology class, um, got to know the professor really well. His name's uh, Father Scott Hebden. I'll give him a shout out here. And... Um, he did a soteriology class as a follow-up, and so I took that. And that's where I was introduced to uh, René Girard's work. We, we read I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, which is probably Girard's main, if not his only, really uh, solely theological work. Um, and I just was fascinated by Girard's mimetic theory. Mm-hmm. Um, got to doing it. One of my other professors at the time was Father Robert Barron. Now it's Bishop Robert Barron. Mm. Um, there he you go. came up to me one time and he goes, Brian, I hear you're studying Gerard. I said, yeah, he goes, let me ask you, when you see Gerard, do you see him everywhere now? And I said, yes, Because <laughs> um, this theory is one of those ones that just seems to apply to everything. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, well, mimetic desire became one of those uh, kind of overarching ideas that once you start noticing, you're going to see it everywhere. It, it, it really is alarming how simple and yet profound a theory was when he proposed it. Yes, exactly. So, uh, and, before uh, we start talking about I, mimetic desire, uh, for, for, for the benefit of our listeners especially, because we want to define what that is before we talk about your article, you juxtapose his work here with Pope Benedict XVI and Jean-Pierre Torel. Uh, what turned you to the work of Torel? Um, actually, that was when I was writing my dissertation. Um, and I was looking at the Eucharist and baptism in terms of Gerard's mimetic theory, and I just needed some more information on sacrifice. And that's how I ended up um, connecting with uh, Terrell's work. And um, it, the two just kind of meshed together mm-hmm. beautifully uh, when I read that, that Terrell claims you know, the Eucharist is truly the one true form of 
sacrifice. And Gerard is arguing that all these sacrifices from archaic religions are false sacrifices. And so the two just mesh very well together. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that that you brought about this kind of synthesis between the thought of the two men. And I know you appealed to Pope Benedict XVI as well. His Eucharistic Christology massively influenced how I came to view the Eucharistic sacrifice. Spirit of the Liturgy continues to remain one of my favorite works. Uh, But the reason I bring this up is because Terrell is a true blue Thomist. And rather than being this kind of neo-scholastic neo-Thomist, he's a true Thomist. He 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 wants to get to the heart of why Aquinas says what he does, and he extrapolates what a lot of what you mentioned earlier from the Tertiapas of of Saint Thomas Aquinas. So it's amazing that you brought about this synthesis. So let's dive into this. You were talking about mimetic desire. Let's let's talk about what mimetic desire really means. Yeah, the way I describe it, just colloquially, when I'm talking with people, is I. I describe it in the way we interact with a lot of things. Basically, Gerard argues that our desires don't come from within us. Mm-hmm. They come by looking at the desires of other people, and then we mimic or imitate their desires. And so, you know, when I'm talking to students and explaining this, I'll say something like, you know, I have an iPhone, right, or something like that. And all of a sudden, the fact that I have this iPhone makes other people want this iPhone makes you say, oh, there must be some value to it because, you know, Father Carpenter wants the iPhone. And then I see other people uh, saying that, oh, you know, seeing that desire in themselves, that that they want this iPhone because I want it. It Mm -hmm. makes me more affirmed in my desire that, hey, I chose the right phone when (laughs) I went and bought my phone or something like that. And it makes me want it all the more. Right. They see me do that and kind of just snowball and escalate, and they want it even all the more. They say, look, he's clinging that thing to himself now since he's noticed our desire for it. And it kind of, uh, you know, snowballs and gets bigger and bigger. The desire gets stronger and stronger. That's right. That's right. But as Gerard points out, this also then leads to rivalry. Mm-hmm. Um, he said what will happen is, so if you and I are fighting over this iPhone, you know, you're going to go out and <laughs> you're going to say, hey, isn't Father Carpenter a jerk? He doesn't share his iPhone with any of us. <laughs> and I'm going to go to my friends and I'm going to say, oh, you know, what does Marcus think? He, what business does he have using my iPhone? Isn't that you know, ridiculous? Right. And we start to form camps this way. Now, the interesting thing about this is it goes against a lot of what our society teaches, because our society will say that rivalries are formed by differences. Yep, but yep. But really what Gerard argues is that they're formed by... Similarity. Yep. Undifferentiation. Right. Um, and you see this everywhere, right? I mean, I, I take sports, for example. Um, you know, if I, you take something like a Yankees fan and a Red Sox fan, right? If you don't care at all about baseball or American baseball, they look like two of the same thing, right? They're both fighting over things. What team did what to who? How many years ago or something like that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they look essentially the same, a White Sox and a Yankees fan. But if you tell a Yankees fan that he's essentially a White Sox oh, boy. Red Sox fan, Oh, you know, that's fighting words. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, them's fighting words from a, from a non-New Yorker. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And vice versa. But to an outsider who doesn't have any vested interest in the rivalry, they say, ah, they're basically the same. Right. Um, but to somebody who's inside of that, it becomes highly personable. Now, what... And so... Now, I want to I backtrack from that okay. a little bit, because so what you're talking about has to do with, with a kind of adult appreciation for mimetic desire. But the fact is, and Gerard would be the, one of the first to point this out, we see this in as early as uh, pre, 
like infant and toddlers you know uh, mm-hmm. these are children whose prefrontal co- cortex has have yet to be developed into uh, proper cognitive reasoning and yet when one infant has something all of a sudden every other infant in the room wants that yes yeah and there's research shows these things science is backing this up with this um, mirror neurons right yep um, that have been discovered and studied and human beings have these neurons. These are neurons that allow imitation to occur. Mm-hmm. And human beings have it in an exponentially higher quantity than any other animal. Um, going back to Aristotle's point, which is we are the most imitative of all creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it starts, like you said, from birth. Oh, father, you... Oh. Yes. Oh, Father, sorry, we, we lost you a little bit. So you said, uh, oh. you suggested it starts as early as from, from infancy and toddlerhood, but go on. Yes, yeah. So it starts, it starts very early on, and it's a condition that we're born into. I, in my research, have kind of equated this with, um, and Gerard does as well, with the condition of sin in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we tend to do is we tend to choose the wrong model for our imitation, right? Um, even from birth, because our model should be God, right? We're made in the image and likeness of God. Um, but so often we look to creatures That's <laughs> for right. um, our, our imitation. And it starts in the, the whole story in the garden, right? We, uh, yep, I was going to bring that up exactly. The uh, original right. sin on Adam's part could be argued as a form of mimetic desire for what Eve already had. Yes, yep. So, yep. so I want to uh, just take a, a step forward from there. Then, Gerard talks about this kind of triangulation of the self, the other, and the object, and and so that's what you're referring to. That uh, very often we we choose the wrong other, we choose the wrong model, if you will, for the manifestation of our mimetic desire. So, so tell us a little more about that. Yeah. So what happens is rather than choosing to imitate God, we choose to imitate creature. We, mm-hmm. we see this in, in the fall, right? Eve is uh, led into thinking that God is a rival trying to hold you back. You, mm-hmm. know, you, you won't die. You'll, you'll, you'll be like God. And she begins to imitate the snake, right? The, the, the serpent. Right. And then Adam does it as, as well. And it leads to a system. So you said there's this triangular thing where you've got the rival and then whatever object serves fighting over. So, you know, when I used my iPhone example earlier on, that would be the, the object. Um, but eventually it ceases to become about the object anymore. Mm. And it just becomes a highly personal um, rivalry. And the rivalry becomes the all-consuming and defining thing in the relationship. That's right. And actually, it, def- it brings about definition to a person. Remember, we talked about this arising because they're too similar to each mm-hmm, other. People mm-hmm. are too similar, so they start to form rivalries. And my identity then becomes, I'm not Marcus Peter. <laughs> you know? right. Or I'm not a Red Sox fan. I'm a Yankees fan, right? That's right. I, I'm a Notre Dame alum, so I'd say, you know, I'm not a USC fan <laughs> or something right. like that. And we're um, seeing this manifest, in, at, at the very least here in the United States, in a very particular sense, uh, with political identification. Yes, exactly. And, and it ceases to become anything about the, the objects or the arguments anymore, and it becomes about the identity. Yep. Um, and my and part of the identity might be I'm a particular you know political party or a particular sports fan. I you know whatever you want to take there. But also along with that is and I'm a rival of this other group. So mm-hmm. part of what defines me is this rivalry. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, this is not the 
condition we're called to right. uh, being made in the image and likeness of God. And this is, you know, what I'm trying to get at with this revival within the Eucharist is Christ is calling us away from that and into a relationship of kenosis or self-authoring mm-hmm. rather than rivalry. So instead of defining ourselves by our rivalries, we are supposed to define ourselves by our relationship to Christ in the Eucharist. Right. And um, I want to I really want to continue the conversation on the natural conclusion of mimetic rivalry if it's not checked in okay. the person of Christ. But we'll do it on the other side of the break. Been talking to Father Brian Carpenter, parochial vicar at St. Matthew Cathedral in South Bend and adjunct faculty member at Holy Cross College in Notre Dame, Dame, Indiana. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta. Talking to Father Brian Carpenter, parochial vicar at St. Matthew Cathedral in South Bend and adjunct faculty member at Holy Cross College in Notre Dame, Indiana. So, Father, we were talking about the triangular model of mimetic desire, the self, the other, and the object. And it's amazing that you juxtapose uh, René Girard with, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Torel. Now, the the fundamental Thomistic framework would argue that desire isn't primarily social. It's it's driven by these innate powers in the soul. The intellect has this appetite, this desire for truth, and the will has the appetite and desire for good. Uh, but Gerard would argue that there's a social contagion, if you will, to desire. So how do you square this triangular hole, if you will pardon the pun? Yeah. I just had to do that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one. I, I do tend to side, at least functionally, with uh, Gerard, but Gerard will say that he's not speaking in absolute terms. Oftentimes, he sounds like he is when mm-hmm. you read his work and things. But he will say there are certain things that are, you know, good enough themselves. Like he wouldn't deny, I don't believe, um, that you know God is good enough himself. But he says when it comes to things, when it that are really matters of you know, preference, let's, let's call it, you know, beyond like the things that we need for survival, food, mm-hmm. clothing, shelter, we do tend to imitate what we perceive as a good, but usually what it is is we see the good in an other, or something that the, the other has some quality. So, so the rival has happiness or joy or something. We say, I want that. Yep. That could be that Thomistic good, if you will, that uh, sets some of this off. You know, mm-hmm. Having joy in your life is good, having beauty, these types of things. Um, but what uh, sets off the specific desire in our particular circumstances, it seems is highly dependent upon those around us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see, um, you know, somebody who has a certain life, you know, that we want, there's something envious about us in them. And of course, some of this just comes from the fall too, I think, our ability probably to fully comprehend the good, as uh, Aquinas would say, is somewhat marred in our fallen nature. Yep. We often choose things that are wrong and bad for right. us. Um, so I, I think that that also plays into it. And Gerard talks about that aspect when he says, the, the only history that I know, just as Gerard speaking, is the only history I know is a fallen man. You know, whatever yep. man looks like before the fall, we don't have a real recorded history of, you know, how the dynamics played out and everything. <laughs> that's true, that's true. You know, Ger- Gerard also, in, in his writing, particularly on mimetic desire, uh, it would appear that the lean of the manifestation of mimetic desire is for uh, 
created goods, private goods, the, and, and therefore the competition for private goods is what results in mimetic rivalry. But the truth is we can also see mimetic rivalry in goods that are more common as opposed to private. For example, uh, conservatives will argue within the spectrum, I'm more conservative than you, like you're more conservative than me, and, and set, or, or even, even within Catholicism, I'm traditional, but I, I'm not as traditional as you. You're way more traditional than me. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we're going to see this, <laughs> like you said, we're going to see kind of Gerard's mimetic desire imprint across all of reality as soon as you start seeing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's exactly right. Um, it's everywhere... And Gerard even points out part of the way it works, too, is because we don't realize it's working, right? Right. Um, so we, we see it, and it's easy for us in that sense to see it in others. It's harder, I think, for us to see it in ourselves, mm-hmm. right? To see where are my rivalries? Who am I scapegoating? Who am I um, in these, I call them silly competitions with, right? It's easy for me to look at you know, the, the Red Sox, the Yankees, and say, oh, that's all silly there. <laughs> it's, it's much harder for me as a Notre Dame fan to say, but it's just as silly with USC and Notre Dame or something, you know, where it's more personal to you. Right, um, right. It becomes much harder to see that. That's right. And, you know, coming from the Ann Arbor, Detroit area, I have to say my family and I, we're all Detroit Tigers fans and Detroit okay. Lions fans. And, and if you know, you, you know about these two teams and you know where they stand in the rankings. And, and yet mm-hmm. that rivalry really exists when, when we're playing yeah. against other teams. We know we're going to lose. But, yeah. uh, but yeah. mimetic rivalry really exists. And, and that brings us to the third level that Girard talks about, which is scapegoating. In order to resolve the chaos that uh, competition for these goods has, re- has caused in mimetic rivalry, scapegoating occurs. So tell us a little about that, because he then proposes the Eucharist as a kind of remedy to scapegoating, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, that's, um, that's what I, I do. I propose that as the remedy. Um, Gerard proposes Christ in general. I, mm-hmm. I propose the Eucharist. Right. What Gerard says is basically says what happens is eventually in these rivalries, we get to this boiling point in our society. Um, the, the tension starts to build and build and build. And eventually something has to happen to release this tension. He says there's two options, basically. We just go into all against all warfare. And, and especially think in terms of primitive societies where there's no external structures, you know, policing forces and things like that to, right. to really, um, you know, uh, regulate the violence. Mm-hmm. It turns into all against all warfare and the society or the species goes extinct, or we find an agreed upon victim who we can blame, who we truly believe is guilty for these problems that we're facing, and we scapegoat that victim. Yep. Um, I gave an example when I was first talking about this in a class, actually, the same day in class, one of the students had brought up, you know, can we cancel the final exam? And I had explained to him it was policy of the, the school that every class has to have a final exam. And so when I was talking about this whole um, rivalry and scapegoating thing, I said, what happens is eventually there's this tension between you and me as a student on whether we can have or shouldn't have this final exam. And I finally <laughs> say, hey, the dean is the one who's the problem. He's the one who's forcing it upon us. I don't want to greet him. You don't want to take him. And the dean becomes the scapegoat. That's right. right that's right. We all scapegoat the dean. Right? <laughs> and, and it, and, but in the process of scapegoating the dean, it brings about a type of peace between me and the student. That's right. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. There's an adage here. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, even if temporarily. So Right. 
So uh, going going deeper into that, then what your article proposes, what in fact what Gerard proposes, is that this mechanism does itself find a true dissolution in the revelation of Christianity, because in Christianity, right. Christ, it, it, it's the realization that the scape, scapegoat is innocent that puts yeah. an end to mimetic rivalry. Yes, and that's exactly Gerard says. You see this um, rivalry situation and the scapegoating mechanism in every culture and every religion. Mm-hmm. And when you get to Christianity, you see the same dynamic, but there's a big difference. He said the difference is in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's the only tradition where you see you're supposed to side with the victim. Yep. Every other religion, it's the mob is correct. Mm-hmm. You know, at the top of the hour, you talked about um, sacrifice being at the heart of all of our society. Right, right. right. Um, and, and that's exactly what Gerard is saying. But he says, in archaic societies, it's sacrifice based on this scapegoating mechanism. And then he says, what happens with Jesus is everything looks the same here. It's You've got um, a situation where every, all these tensions are happening between the Romans and the Jews and everything mm-hmm, in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and all this tension comes down on the person of Jesus. Yep. But, he said, and, and, or he actually shows it to me, he said, there's a cool line in Luke's Gospel, a lot of people don't catch it, but listen for it on, <laughs> when you read the, the Gospel during Holy Week. Um, it says, from that point on, Herod and Pilate became friends. That's right. Enemies before him. That's right. And this, the the fact that they had chosen this scapegoat created this peace, right? It, mm-hmm. restored a, it created a peace between them. And the whole dynamic looks like it's going to work like it always has in the past. And then three days later, Jesus comes back. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that ruins everything. Right. Because, you know, what, what's revealed is that God was not on the side of those who wanted to kill this victim, mm-hmm. um, which in all the other cases is always seen that way. It's, you're always justified in killing the victim because the victim is the one who brought about the rivalry, right? We're justified in getting rid of the dean because he's making us take these final exams, so right. you know, something like that. Um, there there's always seems to be a justification. And what you realize in the resurrection is that God sided with the victim, not the mob. Right. And that causes you to have to rethink everything. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Paul had this experience, right, when he's uh, on his way to Damascus, where all of a sudden he realized, I'm persecuting this victim here, and i got to rethink my entire life. That's right. All of a sudden. That's right. And, and, and like you said, it's a fundamental premise of the Christian narrative that the victim, the scapegoat, is in fact the victor. And and mm-hmm. and it, it kind of brings about a, rever- a reversal to mimetic rivalry in with regard that the triumph of the scapegoat over the the penalty of death and exclusion that that is typically the result of the scapegoating mechanism allows for true peace to come between the parties that initially had mimetic rivalry to begin with. The, only yeah. Christianity of, affords that mechanism. Right, because in all the archaic religions, there's peace between everybody except one. That's right. right? The scapegoated victim. I, I bring this in to the Mass. At the Mass, I have people who will say to me, you know, why do you say peace be with you, my peace, I mean, why that double emphasis on my peace? And so what's scriptural, if you listen to what Jesus says in the scriptures, it's not as the world gives peace, mm-hmm. right? The world's peace is that false peace that comes about through scapegoating a victim, and it doesn't encompass everyone. Right. But the peace that comes from Christ's sacrifice yeah. is one that is all-encompassing. There's, there's nobody left out of that. Um, and ultimately, you know, we experience that every time we celebrate the Eucharist. 
And the, the key difference is it's the difference between immolating a victim and kenosis, self-offering or mm-hmm. sacrifice. And that's, that, I think, is the key difference. Um, your previous caller or previous person you were talking to talked about the, the sacrifice, the importance of that yep. in, um, in her own life as, a, as an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important as part of this Eucharistic revival that we get to. What do we mean when we talk about sacrifice? We're not talking about the fact that we killed Christ, mm-hmm. but that Christ offered himself for us. Yeah. He emptied himself for us, right. and then we are to be self-emptying for others when we receive the commun- when we receive the Eucharist. Um, we take that sacrifice into ourselves, not so we can go out and kill our, you know, scapegoated victim. That's right. But so that's we right. We can give ourselves for the sake of others. And that's why the Catholic fra- redemption framework is far superior to. I, I, I'm a former Protestant, so I'm saying this in, in a kind of juxtaposing manner. The, the the theology that I received as a Pentecostal was was through the effect of penal substitution. God took all right. of my weight and shoved it on Christ, and He is, uh, and, and He is the the scapegoat who's now taken on all my sins. And there's truth in that. But the Catholic framework of vicarious atonement, that the scapegoat has not only taken on my sins, he, I am joined to His sacrifice, and and yeah. that's that's part of Him calling me to kenosis and compelling me to kenosis. My human nature is up there with Him on that cross, and and the more I join myself to him in, in being conformed into the image of Christ, the more I join in kenosis, the more I, I break away from mimetic rivalry to become the true society, man, and therefore society, that God actually wants us to be. Right. And that's why this whole thing, the Eucharist, is at the heart of the kingdom of God. Right. Gerard says every society has a sacrifice that's at the heart of it. And the kingdom of God's sacrifice is the Eucharist. And it's important that we recognize that sacrificial aspect but not to focus on it as a bloody immolation or the violence, mm-hmm. but as kenosis, the self-offering. You know, Christ says, I have the power to lay down my life. I have the power to take it up again. Um, you don't take it from me, even though that's what it appeared to be on the cross. Right. He was vindicated in the resurrection saying, oh, yeah, I guess he was right and we were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he, he proved it and he continues to prove it time and time again when he offers himself in body, blood, soul and divinity upon the altar. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and, and that's what brings about that true peace, too, is because we can live in this canonic relationship, not only with Christ, but with one another. Yeah, yeah. Father, I'd love to continue talking to you, but we, we, we're just at the bottom of the segment. We're talking to Father Brian Carpenter, parochial vicar at St. Matthew Cathedral in South Bend, Indiana, adjunct faculty member at Holy Cross in Notre Dame, Indiana. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Stay tuned as we round off the second hour of the program.